Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, welcome. Today we're talking about energy, energy efficiency, uh, reducing carbon emissions, and generally how to make this world a better place to live in. Yes. And uh, Morgan's here with me. Hi, Morgan. Hi, Rob. How's it going? So we're going to do a different kind of program today because um, we've been talking to people outside of the show, and so we're going to, uh, we've pre-recorded the conversations with them, and um, we'll just step through those. We've got two guests today. Ed Smith is with uh, Tarek, no, he's with Indigo Ad, Ad Agriculture. And he's going to talk about the Terraton Initiative. And then David Wagner is an energy consultant who's going to tell us how uh, the most effective source of energy is energy efficiency and how we can be more efficient in what we do. And by doing that, as he says, it's like creating a virtual power plant. Yeah. Um, so we're really excited to talk to Ed Smith from Indigo Ag. He's the head of carbon there. Um, and Indigo Ag is a really interesting startup that is based out of our home area of Boston, which is exciting to have a local guest. And Indigo Ag was recently named the most disruptive company of all 50 on CNBC's list of disruptors, which is really exciting because it means that they're sort of pioneering the carbon capture industry and a really a titan of agriculture right now. So we're really lucky that we got time to speak with Ed. Yeah, and I invite you to go to the Indigo Ag, ag uh, which is one word, .com is a website, mm-hmm. and you can see the video of them getting that uh, award for being most disruptive, yeah. which is remarkable since they only started in 2014. Right, only five years old, and they're already making big moves. And I want to thank Ali Ebert, who uh, chased Ed down and got him to sit still long enough to talk with us, uh, you know, at his, at, well, at his convenience, but uh, it was really great to get to talk to the guy in charge, and... Uh, yeah, so let's take a listen to this interview with Ed Smith. Uh, welcome. My guest today is Ed Smith, Vice President and Head of Carbon at Indigo Ag. Hello, Ed. Hello. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, Indigo Ag is an agricultural high-tech startup that has put together a toolbox with a number of sciences that include microbiology and artificial intelligence to improve the yield, sustainability, and profits of five commodity corps, for, um, crops, uh, corn, cotton, rice, wheat, and soybeans. Indigo Ag takes a systemic, comprehensive approach from seed to tables. And today we're going to talk about, um, well, our, our ORI, our Ocean River Institute summer intern from Tufts, Morgan Berman, is here. And I want to thank you, Morgan, for pulling this together, this, this whole conversation. And... Um, I'm going to hand it over to you so you can talk about, talk about the other aspect besides the seeds and the agriculture, which is the artificial intelligence, digital marketplace, and specifically the Terratron Challenge. Absolutely. Um, so, hi, Ed. Thank you again for being with us. 
Um, something we're very interested in at the Ocean River Institute, where we all work, is carbon sequestration and the idea of pulling out carbon from the atmosphere as opposed to trying to reduce emissions or in addition to doing that. Um, so firstly, we want to ask sort of what is the Terraton initiative overall, um, both on the side of vendors and what is it doing atmospherically? Um, and then, you know, we'll ask some more questions about it as we get into it. Absolutely. Yeah, so, so I mean, I would assume most of your listeners, if not all, fully aware of the magnitude of the carbon problem that we have. I mean, basically, like, we just continually are hitting uh, record highs um, at, you know, 415 parts per million of uh, CO2 equivalent in the atmosphere. If you look, you know, 200, 250 years ago, it was more like 280. Right. The, that delta, that difference um, in terms of carbon in the atmosphere across the entire atmosphere of the world is we have roughly one trillion tons of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that we don't want there. Um, and the results are, I mean, it's almost hard to wrap your head around what's going to happen to the world. Right. Um, and so the Terrafin Initiative fundamentally is focused on uh, removing one trillion tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, sequestering it in agricultural soils, and by doing that, enriching and rehabilitating and regenerating those agricultural soils to improve farm profitability, uh, yield stability, and um, quality of the output, whether it's food or fiber, quality right. of the output. That's fundamentally what the Terracon Initiative is all about. Now, that's the goal. There's four parts to the Terracon Initiative. Um, the first part is Indigo Carbon, which is our carbon marketplace. Right. Which, which is compensating growers. It, it, it's quantifying how much carbon is taking out of the atmosphere. It's productizing it in the form of carbon credits or carbon offsets. offsets. And it's uh, and catalyzing financial incentives to flow back to farmers so they adopt those. That's piece one. Piece right. two is the Terrapin experiment, uh, which is focused on um, advancing the soil science around Soil, car soil organic carbon, carbon sequestration, and regenerative practices. Okay. Uh, there is a lot of very good science done to date, but all of our scientific partners would say it's not nearly broad enough or deep enough, both metaphorically and literally. We okay. need to be on more acres with more samples, better understanding soil organic carbon, perfecting the models that help predict that. So that's what the Terraton experiment is all about. And then there's the Terraton challenge, which has two components. Part A is an innovation challenge. We're trying to catalyze new technologies like better scientific methods for measuring soil organic carbon, better sampling technologies. Or, and then the second piece is the carbon cup, which is basically a yield competition, which, which all of our grower partners are very familiar with. But instead of measuring you know, bushels per acre, we are measuring absolute levels of, so of carbon in the soil and then um, rates of sequestration. So who can get their levels the highest and who can increase them the fastest. Wow, so those that's are the four pieces of the yeah. Those are very exciting. Thank you so much for explaining that. That's helpful to sort of understand the, the bigger picture. Um, so my next question is one that's kind of general, but also definitely is very involved with the Terraton Initiative, and that's sort of how do you, as the head of Indigo Carbon, explain to growers and balance the economics of it, um, which is like increasing yields and quantifying carbon, and also explain to um, farmers that like they're doing something sustainable and sort of balancing the ethics of it with balancing the economics of it. How does that play out in your role? 
They're, they're sort of beautifully aligned. Um, and the grower conversations are some of my favorite conversations because they get so immediately. Mm-hmm. If you're on a farm, growers are going to talk to you about their soil biology and their soil organic carbon levels. I mean, they know those intimately because that is the health and livelihood of their farm, which they're passionate about. Right. And so to go in and say, you know, we'd like to compensate you for increasing your soil organic carbon levels and we're going to make clear recommendations for how you can do that and support you along the way, I mean, they're all in. And then, you know, top it off with, we'll pay you $15 a ton and we think you can be sequestering over two tons of carbon per acre per year. So that's, you know, 30 to $45 per acre per year if you adopt all the practices of, of regenerative, all the regenerative practices. Right. Um, they're, they're immediately on board. Uh, and we've seen that so far in our success. I mean, we have over 4 million of acres ex- proactively expressing interest. Uh, that is a staggering number for having announced Inigo Carbon five, six weeks ago. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's catching on quite nicely with growers. Congratulations. That's very exciting. Um, and that brings me to my next question. So I know Indigo Ag was recently named a disruptor, um, a disruptor company. And I wonder, have you already been, like, since the announcement of the Terraton Initiative and all of these new carbon programs that you're rolling out, have you seen that the industry overall of carbon credits, even outside of Indigo, is changing around it? Or sort of how is it, how is Indigo serving as a disruptor in the carbon market industry? Yeah, it, I mean, it's, in terms of the broader carbon market world, I think it's too early to tell there, but I'll tell you how we're thinking, how we want to disrupt there. Every carbon market was created with just incredibly inspiring intentions, right? Let's, let's, let's quantify and price carbon and let's incentivize folks to do things that take it out of the atmosphere. I mean, that is, we are fundamentally on board with that. The problem comes in with we just haven't even come close to the scale we need to. We have a trillion tons in the atmosphere that needs to come out. Now, we also obviously need to cut greenhouse gas emissions. Like, every day we are pumping a crazy amount of greenhouse gas in the atmosphere. Like, we have to stop that. That's obvious. This is a multi-pronged solution. But we also have to take carbon out of the atmosphere. we're just not coming close to the to, to the scale we need to. And so the way we want to disrupt this, or the innovation we want to bring here is the scale component. And we think with our digital platform, we will be able to bring a level of rigor and transparency and believability to carbon credits that has never been there before. Um, when you buy a carbon credit, it's very hard to know if you actually help get a ton of carbon out of the atmosphere and put it someplace else. Um, especially when it comes to land management carbon credits. There's all sorts of different carbon credits, and ours in particular about land management. So that's where we think we can do something quite new and different. That's fantastic. Um, it's exciting. The scale question is definitely something that um, Indigo seems to have a, a really interesting role in in terms of figuring out how to roll out these programs in a way that makes tangible change across the world. So that's very exciting. Yeah. Thank you, Ed. Yeah, we, um, well, go ahead. Respond. Well, I was going to add. Well, I was going to add one thing to that, right? I mean, our DNA is very much, and I think it was reflected in winning that um, the most disruptive company on the Disruptor 50 list. Right. Our DNA is very much in the world of tech, 
And so if techno doesn't do anything, it has scale or an efficient cost. And you've got any number of, of great examples from Silicon Valley. Um, we want to do that too, but we have our, uh, our hearts are in the land with agriculture. And that's just a place where the tech, scalable, cost-effective, um, massively impactful mindset hasn't necessarily gotten to yet. And so we're excited to bring that there because we think it'll be good for farmers, it'll be good for the planet, and it'll be good for all of us as consumers of food and fiber. Yes. Um, we're out of time. Is there uh, takeaway messages that you would like our uh, listeners to uh, have in their toolbox? Yeah. Well, whether you are a grower, uh, a consumer, a corporation, a nonprofit playing in this space, we would love to hear from you. We have put out a really big goal here, and we are very aware that it's going to take a coalition of partners of all shapes and sizes from across the globe. And so our website is set up, I think, quite nicely to uh, capture that interest. And so uh, consumers can go on and they can purchase carbon credits. Companies can go on if they're interested in purchasing carbon credits and give us some information and we can get in touch about that. If growers want to sign up for Indigo Carbon, they can do that on our website. So I would encourage everyone to go to indigoag.com backslash Terraton and uh, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, indigo.com. Indigoag.com. Indigoag, one word. Um, dot com backslash Teratron. Yep. Um, and thank you for telling us what number a Teratron was because I've been wondering how many tons of carbon that was. And so it's a good clarifying question. Um, so I think that's all the time we have. And thank you again so much for speaking with us. And it was a pleasure to learn about all the exciting things happening in the atmosphere and in the atmosphere of Indigo X. My pleasure. Thanks so much for uh, the invite. Morgan, thank you for putting that setting that whole thing up. I was off at sea and uh, sailing the, between Iceland and Greenland and so forth. So it was, this is really exciting work that Terratron is doing because, as you know, all the nations came together for the Paris Accord and they agreed to work really hard to reduce it to um, an increase in, in global temperatures by between 2 and 1.5 degrees. They, our nations pushed them to 1.5, and they really dug in to do that. And they've been, they came out of this, came the report that they've got to do it in 12 years or they'll have missed the opportunity and so forth. And people have been taking that 10 years, what's now 10 years, and running around waving everyone saying, if we don't do everything in 10 years, the world's going to end. But that 10 year was just for the Paris support people that were only looking at or primarily looking at climate emissions reduction, and the, uh, if we're gonna, we need to go to four degrees, not just two degrees, and so if we're going to double it, we have to go to calorie ca uh, capture, and that's the beauty and the strength of Indigo Ag is that they are uh, setting the market to work, they're using artificial intelligence, uh, they are, they're not doing genetic engineering, they are putting um, packaging seeds with ingredients to help them grow better with less energy. Mm -hmm. uh, so they, uh, this is a really exciting way to turn the tide of reducing significantly the, the rise in, in greenhouse gases. Absolutely. Um, and what's really special about Indigo as well is that 
they're an agriculture company by nature, but actually they're mostly a technology company when you look at the amount of positions that they hire for and, you know, sort of what their specialty is. So it's sort of the tide of the future. I assume that in agriculture in the United States, we're going to need to get more efficient and have as much tech as we can. And that means, like you said, artificial intelligence. That means machine learning. That means more automated systems and sort of like a a cloud-like network of growers and stuff. So it's cool to think about um, what the agriculture industry might look like in, you know, as an hour generation. And it'll succeed because they're working closely with ag. They're not outside experts telling farmers how to grow stuff. They are intimately connected. So it's it's a balanced kind of act. Um, So this is very exciting news. And um, for more information, there's their website. Uh, Also, we have information at org on things you can do, uh, like getting your lawn to be capturing more carbon and to be better sponge to protect people's homes from global warming. So for information on that, go to oceanriver.org. Uh, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about the next guest, David Wagner, an energy consultant on increasing energy efficiency. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.oceanriver.org. That's oceanriver.org. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. 
Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, I'm here with Ocean River Institute summer intern, Morgan Berman. And we're kind of digging through the files of, uh, while I've been out at sea, uh, Morgan and Jesse have been hard at work holding the fort together and advancing climate change actions. And um, so let's, um, let's, let's talk about our next guest, uh, that's David Wagner. And um, how did um, we end up have a nice recording of uh, David? Yeah, um, so David Wagner is the brother of my good friend Sarah. Hi, Sarah, if you're listening. Um, and David came to visit Sarah and me, uh, well, her, and then I ended up meeting him, and we were talking sort of about environmental stuff, and Sarah had mentioned to me that David was an energy consultant, um, which is a, a field that I don't know a ton about as an environmental biology student, a little bit different than the energy sector, um, but I was definitely interested to talk to him about what that's like, um, and it turns out that he is just a fountain of information on efficiency and has a ton of interesting thoughts on how individuals can be more efficient and also sort of the grid system, which is obscured, I think, to the normal consumer, so it's cool to hear someone from the inside sort of talking us through it um, and doing so in a really thoughtful way. So we appreciated sitting down to talk with him, and without further ado... All set? Yeah. Hey. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll play the interview now. Hi, I'm here with David Wagner. Hi, David. Hi. Um, so David graduated from Pomona in 2017 with a focus, an environmental focus in his studies of economics and politics. Um, and then after that, he was an energy consultant, a clean energy consultant. Um, and so he has a lot of different experience dealing with energy and sort of figuring out where um, different companies should be sourcing their energy from and a lot of other complicated energy things that I don't quite understand yet. But maybe we'll learn some when we talk to him. Um, so David, tell me what you're doing, what you've been up to in the last few months. It's it's pretty interesting. So, yeah. So, I stopped working as a clean energy consultant, and I decided to pack my things into my car in Seattle and drive, sort of zig around the country and wind up in Maryland. But as you know, right now we're in Boston, so I'm in the middle of it. Nice. And so, what have you? Um, what have been some of the th- stops on your road trip so far? Anything notable? Yeah. Even- national parks nice uh you know seeing old friends on the road and like checking out new places in the country because it's a big country and seeing maybe where i want to end up next nice yeah do you have any cities that you've that piqued your interest that you hadn't known before that you would enjoy yeah there's a lot of great cities uh (laughs) Uh, Los Angeles and Denver and Chicago were all good. Awesome, yeah. nice. Um, yeah. So, have you? So, something that I always think about when I think about road trips and when I've taken petite road trips, nothing like the size that you've been doing, sure. but small ones, is that like you really are on your own with all of your stuff, and it's a lot about like having only the things you need, and also you can see your trash really obviously, sort of because it's all collecting literally in your vehicle or when yeah. you dump it. Have you <laughs> become more aware of the things you keep around you, or more aware of your waste on your journey? Yeah, you have to be. And, you know, you you have to fill up at the gas tank every day, and that's not a good feeling. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, you see your trash right next to you in the passenger seat, and you wonder how you can limit it. 
And uh, yeah, going into my next living situation, maybe I'll I'll carry some lessons over from that. Yeah, that's awesome. Have you ever heard of the whole tiny or the van living craze, where people like do up a van and live in it forever? Oh yeah, I uh, <laughs> I've gotten a little too close to that culture. Yeah, uh, I helped my friend buy a used ambulance to live in. No way. And uh, he's in the process of redoing it, and he had lived in a van before. Uh, so I know those people, uh, and they they. I think have some some cool experiences that more people should hear about. Yeah, totally. It's very uncommon, I feel like, in the U.S. to have a mobile lifestyle like that. Like, we just have so much stuff on us. So it's cool when people like you and your friend are sort of hitting the road with what you have. Um, yeah, and those people tend to have friends and, you know, use their resources as well, uh, which is a good lesson in how we all don't need all of our own things, um, you know, it's like having a small little factory in each household that produces all the things that you need. Mm-hmm. You know, real factories are, are much larger and and uh, distribute their goods to a lot of people. So uh, we can all, you know, share and not own everything. We totally. Know. Yeah. And do you find that like being on the road has made you think more about your relationships in that like you kind of have to ask people to open their homes to you and then, you know, be able to return the favor or just sort of be confident in the people that you're asking yeah well in this case uh i actually broke my ankle on the first day of my road trip uh so i've been saying that really uh puts the hospital in hospitality yeah totally (laughs) uh i i really can't pretend to uh not want people's help because I need their, their help. Yeah, that's, that's awesome of you to say out loud, and that's also, like, I'm sure people who love you throughout the country are happy to lend a hand or a foot or an ankle or something oh, yeah. uh, when you need it. So. I need all of them right now. Yeah, um, yeah. so I'm interested a little bit. Um, so Jesse, my coworker, and I, who do put on this podcast, are always asking different environmental experts sort of how they got the start in their field, and more specifically, like, what were the key experiences maybe when you were younger or maybe when you were in your studies that made you motivated to pursue a career in sustainability. Um, So I'm wondering if you can think about any experiences either in college or before that that sort of got you where you are now. Yeah, for me, it was pretty simple. Uh, I went to a liberal arts school and studied a whole bunch of things, then came to the point where I needed to decide what I was going to do more than all the other things and uh, took an array of classes to basically choose from, choose a major from. Uh, One of them was an environmental studies intro class. And maybe after the first couple weeks, I absolutely knew that that's what I wanted to do. Uh, It was pretty easy. I remember just saying out loud a few times, like, I didn't think it would be this easy. Hmm. You, You learn about this enormous problem of climate change going on and, uh, how all-encompassing it is, uh, the causes and the effects, and mm-hmm. uh, it's both fun to think about, a little scary, and uh, there's just so much to do, so it was just an easy choice. I think it's one of the many uh, worthy callings of uh, my generation. Yeah, totally. It's a good answer. Yeah, I feel like it's rare that you hear an environmental studies student say that the classes are what motivated them, but that's really, or like what sort of got them into their start, but that's really awesome to hear that you, and that's a good way to put it, that like it offers so many opportunities in that it's such a big and complex problem, so it's a very positive way to look at it. Um, yeah. Which is, yeah. And I, in like the working world, I've taken a, a few different um, 
approaches to you know taking action mm-hmm. uh, I've done grassroots I've done uh, working for the federal government the Fish and Wildlife Service oh, nice. and then I did research in academia um, with uh, professors and uh, PhD students who were mostly focused on transportation issues uh, so that was all great and then I ended up for the last couple of years working in energy uh, which I hope to continue working in so mm-hmm. there's a lot of different things people can do and you know you you don't know what what's available to you until you just start asking people and so I, I'm I think the next job I have I wouldn't be surprised if I don't know what it is right now right like if it doesn't even exist yet in its full form or if the this company is still becoming a thing right now or something like yeah that. or if yeah. it just has taken me this long to to become aware that's yeah that's interesting positive again a very positive way to look at it because like the it, the problem of climate change presents so many different really complicated and specific opportunities in it with um but that's I didn't know that you worked for the Fish and Wildlife Service and also did research. So that's cool that you have so many different sort of angles through which you can begin to pursue your next career path. Yeah, and there are a lot of government jobs that I would say, you know, it's it's hard to people ask me like, does your did your job make you feel good about the work you were doing? And of course the answer was yes. Mm. But as far as classifying jobs as like doing good jobs versus not yeah um you know there's a lot of gray area and in the government i personally think that there's a lot of amazing doing good jobs Mm. uh uh to to do and you know people are always retiring and leaving those jobs so the government is a great place to look both state and federal government Totally. That's interesting. I We've talked to other people on this p- program before, and just Jesse and I have been speaking about sort of our next steps as environmental students. Um, and thinking about the government right now is really tough for some people, especially because the EPA, for example, has a ton of openings, but then people wonder about their motives. Like they took the phrase climate change off of the EPA website and have sort of marketed the EPA toward a more energy based sort of um, model. And I don't yeah. know. So, how do you, how do you, did that surface at all in your job and energy? And what was that like? Yeah, so fortunately, all the money that eventually worked its way to our clients, which were the electric and gas utilities, and then to us, Mm -hmm. came from states. Uh, And state legislatures were uh, funding those programs. So uh, the states obviously have to step up when the federal government decides to have other priorities. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in California, everyone knows that that's... Uh, where a lot of those policies start uh, and people look to California, other states look to California uh, to borrow policies or adapt. Uh, California is a great place to work. Um, their uh, California Public Utilities Commission uh, regulates uh, all of their energy programs and that's, that's uh, a huge uh, regulatory body that's doing a lot of good. Uh, and then other states, as they start to come around to wanting to do the same things, uh, there, there's a lot to do there as well. Awesome. So what you're saying is that we can, to an extent, rest assured when the federal government or when the EPA is, is mixing up its priorities or changing them in a way that isn't necessarily with the climate change at the forefront, we can hopefully know that states will you know, have their own agendas and maybe continue fighting the fight against climate change or something like that yeah I mean from from your perspective uh, the federal government 
uh, deprioritizing climate change is not going to mean uh, that you're out of a job. Right. Uh, there is. This is a growing industry, and it's only going to continue growing. Standards are only going to increase if mm -hmm. they are maintained for a little bit. You know, so be it. But right. uh, yeah, there, there's plenty of work out there, and eventually, in the federal government, people uh, will be doing everything they need to there. It's good to hear someone from the inside saying that we probably are not going to be going backwards in terms of standards and <laughs> in the way that we deal with our electric. Well, I was close to the inside. Yeah, uh, that's true. Yeah, maybe I'm optimistic. Um, so I'm, I'm interested a little bit more um, in hearing about your time in the energy sector. And then I also sort of want to ask some comparison questions, but we'll start with your job in energy consulting. Um, so I'm interested, you were saying before um, that you sort of had ideas that were, that the electric the world of electricity is kind of really complicated from the outside but also has some like key factors in it that everyone can understand and I'm wondering if you can maybe explain it to me someone who knows not so much about the grid and also to our listeners who you know we assume are at a similar level yeah so I do not claim to be a scientist uh, but there are things that you learn while working in the space of electricity that you learn about electricity, which I find both interesting and uh, helpful for uh, maybe understanding what people can do on their own. Mm -hmm. uh, so your organization seems to have uh, a fun like focus on individual efforts and yeah. grassroots, and I think that's important. Mm -hmm. uh, my clients um, were all of the electric and gas utilities were so uh, focused and ever increasingly focused on the customers. What are these customers, these individuals, like people listening to this and you, what are they going to be deciding to do about their energy every day and uh, on and on into the future? Right. Uh, and those decisions can matter. Um, so there, there's the concept of peak energy. Right. Uh, and... That concept is pretty helpful for understanding maybe when you want to turn on your washer and dryer machine and when not, because it makes a difference. Mm -hmm. So uh, everyone, uh, for the most part, leaves their home in the mornings. They go to school. Mm -hmm. They go to work. Their homes at that time are not... Uh, requiring as much demand from the grid. Right. When you turn on a switch, you're asking uh, for energy from the grid. Uh, and when you're at work and your switches are off, you're not asking for much. Then everyone gets home at about, f about 5 to 9 p.m. Mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, it varies per region, um, but that's what we call peak energy demand. And uh, peak energy demand is costly for your electric utilities. Right because they need to serve any request you have for energy, right? Whenever you turn on a, a switch, you get it. There's and it, no bargaining for it. No, if, if you don't get it, there's a blackout or something's wrong and you call someone and you complain, right? right? It always has to be there. Something about electricity is it has to be used right away as soon as it's made. So when you turn on your switch, and light comes to you, the electricity that's powering your light was made very soon before that. Uh, so that's always a fun thing to think about when trying to conserve energy, when you turn off a switch or something, right. you think that energy is being made right now and I can cut it off, at least totally. at, at my house. 
Yeah. Uh, so they have to serve everyone. And in order to do that, it's just like the traffic lanes, right? We need enough lanes so that at peak traffic, we can fit everyone. Mm-hmm. They need enough power plants, uh, power generating sources, uh, so that they can serve everyone at the highest demand. So let's say when everyone gets home from work on the hottest day of the year, right. they need to have all the power that's being asked of them. Okay. So they keep some power plants uh, in reserve. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are called their peaker plants. Huh. So. Peaker plants are plants that they only want to use in these times. Why? Because they're usually older, they're more expensive to use, mm-hmm. probably dirtier. So in the past, huh. coal plants have been peaker plants because those are uh, things that we could just have on it at all times, maybe running a little bit slowly and then right. pick up when we need them. Hmm. Um, although it's dirty and expensive to do that. Right. Um, now, natural gas plants are... are most of the peaker plants in the country Mm -hmm. uh, because they are even faster to turn on. So we ask them to kick in uh, to gear and they provide it for us. So the peak energy that you're getting is the dirtiest energy. Right. Another reason for that, solar power, which is, as we know, is growing, is uh, most powerful during the day. Right. The sun shines and then it goes down just about the same time that people get home from work. So we have all that energy from the sun, which is clean, when people are away from their homes. Right. Uh, And we're figuring out how to store that energy and make sure we can use it later in the day, but that's not there yet. So when you are using the main, uh, the the, the most energy-intensive devices in your home, and by that I mean your heating and air conditioning, your washer and dryer, your refrigerator, your dishwasher, and like all of your lights, um, you can sort of think in your head, Am I? can I use these outside of the window of mm. 5 to 9 p.m.? Because that would save a lot of effort that my, com- my old company and my old clients are trying to figure out. They mm. want to influence you to use the grid in... Uh, the most efficient way possible. Totally. Uh, and so that's a good thing for people to, to think about. Can you wait to turn on your washer until right before bed and sort of let it run through the night? Might be a little bit better. Interesting. Um, and that brings up a, the whole question that I know about in terms of power, about whether or not when you're working with sustainability, you're more focused on efficiency, like sort of at the pipeline when you're there what like how much people are using and when and how efficient they are with their electricity versus the origins of the electricity whether it's alternative electric or it's natural gas or oil etc um so i'm wondering sort of how the balance of those two existed in your old job either in your own personal ideology or when you were working with clients yeah so another thing about electric utilities is that they are monopolies Uh, they are the only people you can ask when you turn on your light switch to make it work. So for that reason, they are heavily, heavily regulated, and that's probably a good thing. A result of that heavy regulation is that uh, they have to put a lot of effort into proving to the government that they are doing what is most cost-effective for their customers, because their customers are everyone, and the government's trying to look out for everyone. So 
my company focused mostly on demand side management. You're mm-hmm. talking about the difference between demand and supply. Right. We had to be cognizant of uh, supply side uh, trends and uh, how our clients were feeling about that. But mainly, and this is actually, I think, a good way for me to put myself in the shoes of like all of the energy, cust- as many different energy customers as I could. Mm-hmm. We were focused on demand side management. How can we work with the people who are demanding energy uh, and see uh, where they are leaning, how, how they are willing to adapt their lifestyles and what they want from the utilities. That's, yeah, that's interesting. So you guys were heavily focused on the at-the-switch sort of management and sort of behavioral psychology and where all of those things converge. Yeah, a lot of people at my company had PhDs in psychology, PhDs uh-huh. in policy, uh, or an in in-depth interviewing mm-hmm. uh, to try to figure out what p- people are thinking. Wow, that's and fascinating. I, I should add that the most cost-effective source of energy is energy efficiency. And there is a new uh, school of thought um, called like energy efficiency as a resource, uh, and, or you could call it a, a virtual power plant. Basically, now utilities are in their actual plans, their supply-side plans, so this is how it sort of merges. Mm-hmm. They will incorporate demand-side savings into their uh, projections for future supply. Interesting. So in the future, if they know they're going to have uh, a 10 or 15% increase in customers, uh, whether those are more people living in houses or maybe more factories are moving in and demanding energy from their factories, mm-hmm. they can account for building however much new generation they need. But, you know, there's a lot of opportunity and it's the most cost effective way because you don't have to build out right. a whole uh, power plant and it doesn't take years and years to get permission. It's very quick. You get in touch with your customers. You figure out how they're willing to save what they want from you. And there's a lot of energy to be saved, so you don't need to build that next power plant. And when a power plant gets built, it's not going to stop functioning for probably 20, 30 years. So these are big events uh, that can be avoided altogether. Totally. Um, so I have a question, and I'm not sure if it's relevant to what you've done, and if it's not, we can just move on and say that it's not something that you know too much about. But I'm happy to um, admit <laughs> that I don't know yeah. things. <laughs> um, so something that we've talked about a lot at the Ocean River Institute and just like throughout our interviews with different people is the concept of environmental justice and the building of things that cause pollution and noise and make things make landscapes worse um, in areas where people are typically underserved communities and people um, who can't necessarily speak up against the building of such things do you did, did your company deal at all with like where power plants were being built or does that not really have anything to do with with your job so uh, environmental justice is something that you know when you have an internal meeting uh, and people are talking about what sort of new projects we want to take on Everyone yeah. wants to do something in the realm of environmental justice yeah. because we are all aware of the things that you mentioned. We're also aware that uh, you can view most energy spending uh, as basically a flat tax, a regressive tax on everyone, right? Yeah. Everyone's paying the same rates for their energy. And when we increase your utility bill, maybe just like 0.1%, in order to fund a new clean energy initiative, we are 
increasing everyone's bill by the same right. amount, and that is regressive. So built into these um, uh, increases in bills uh, to fund programs are uh, specific uh, allotments for low-income program building. Mm. And there's a lot of interesting work going on. Um, it's hard to reach your low-income customers sometimes, mm -hmm. especially the ones that don't have a consistent address mm -hmm. or don't have internet, maybe you don't have a phone line, mm -hmm. or those things just aren't uh, reliable on a year-to-year -year basis. Right. You have people who like are renting their homes instead of owning them. There's a lot of uh, tricky uh, variables at play um, when you're trying to service low-income customers. Mm -hmm. And we had programs, like I spent months and months um, just figuring out through interviews uh, and through data analysis, how can we help uh, in XL Energy's Colorado territory? How can we help uh, target low-income customers um, to get uh, heating and cooling savings mm -hmm. um, through a specific program? They were trying really hard to figure it out, and I think we did uh, unearth some, some cool conclusions. Um, but yeah, that is like are really it's it's always a passion project people yeah. are always willing to stay up at night to work on those things and they should only be more and more common in the future because a lot of these uh environmental uh spending bill packages uh, they got to include um you're you're taking away money from everyone equally you got to give back to the people where that money means the most absolutely um well thank you so much for that eloquent answer it's always exciting to hear that environmental justice concepts are being incorporated into all sectors of sustainability and hopefully all you know business and commerce ventures in the future um so now i'll ask the last question of the interview that we ask most of our guests which is that um a sustainability tip that you yourself maybe practice or something you've learned either in a job or on your road trip or any time in your study something small that all of our listeners can maybe take home with them after listening to this and can do to make the world a little bit greener so do you have anything in mind Sure. So in addition to what I was saying earlier, which is use your most energy intensive devices, not during peak demand. Mm -hmm. That's big. Yeah. Um, I would say the, the main part of my job was helping utilities figure out how to fund programs that were designed uh, at their core to give money to customers like me and you um, in order to go out and buy a more energy efficient uh, device, whether it's a TV or a, a cooling system, uh, or maybe it's, it's something even smaller, uh, like uh, something that plugs into a wall. Um, there are a lot of programs being run, um, and just like it's hard to reach uh, low-income customers sometimes if they don't have an address, it's just hard to reach people in general. You know, mm -hmm. who wants to listen to your utility uh, any more than what is my bill, what do I have to pay, and I'll think about it again next month. Right. There are a lot, there's like millions and millions uh, and more dollars being spent on us to try to help us save our money on our energy bills uh, and, you know, reduce emissions. So... There are programs run that are catered, catered to 
residential customers. There are programs run that are catered to industrial, commercial customers. So if you work at a place and you think that people aren't turning off the lights or you think that uh, the the boiler or the oven or whatever you're they're using is is old and could be updated um, that's something that your utility is also probably thinking about and it could be as simple as googling what does my utility offer in the way of an incentive here mm -hmm. for you to make a difference Absolutely. and the way that these decisions usually are made are your thing breaks and you're like shit I gotta go buy something new right away so if you can just put a little bit of research into that decision, maybe your fridge broke last night and you really want a new one, but it actually matters, you know, over the course of time, how much energy your new fridge uh, demands. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of information out there and, you know, it's hard to reach people, but if you look for it, you can find it. Uh, and I would just say, do your research when you're making decisions that uh, you think might affect how much energy you're using. Great. Well, thank you so much, David, for speaking with us. That was very informative, and I, I definitely think that I personally will think more about my energy usage, and I think our listeners will too. So thanks so much for having for, for being here. Great. Thank you for having <laughs> me. <laughs> well, that was really interesting. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and uh, Morgan and I are going to run over to Harvard Florist and check out the future plants, and then we'll come back after that break mm -hmm. to wrap it up. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.oceanriver.org. That's oceanriver.org. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Take me to the 
are listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. Again, that's 1-866-472-5788. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi. So, David Wagner was talking, told us all about energy conservation. I especially was interested, well, um, Morgan, you made a number of good points in that interview. I like to want to, we have too much stuff on us and we have to do less to feel. And your, your comment of pointing out that, and that you both were talking about how environmental studies is big and complex problems. Uh, the idea of peak power production is really crucial to his whole talk, how that, um, you know, there are times when the natural rhythms of society is that they want a lot of energy at once, usually the evening hours, and then there's great times of not so much. And he, he explained that the problem with solar is that it's only during sunlight. Um, he, he missed the part that usually when the sun goes down, the wind picks up. So if we have wind and solar, um, they work kind of together because uh, in the daytime, the sun is heating up the ground and that causes the air to rise and that causes onshore winds to start filling in. And then when the sun goes down, the uh, heat sinks go down and we turn to offshore winds. So there's actually a kind of natural uh, area breathing of, Sun up, you know, breathe in, sun down, breathe out. So it's it, the benefit, the way to avoid peak problems is to have both solar and wind, not just one or the other. Another way is, um, well, the, the, the biggest way that he explained this to us is uh, energy efficiency and that, you know, that's a real resource in itself. He called it the virtual power plant uh, so that if we can just cut down on use, uh, then we won't have to um, have those plants. And if you close down the old ones that are kept around just to fill in the gaps like that. Uh, technology has advanced so that Monterey, uh, California, built uh, a battery storage utility, basically. And after running for a while, they found they could close down three natural gas utilities, uh, peak, peak utilities, uh, because the battery picked up that, probably in conjunction with the community doing lots of energy efficiency. Uh, and you hit on the important question of environmental justice. And uh, it's not the utilities that get to choose where they're planted. It is the, the communities and the politicians and so forth. And so we have a real problem of, you know, not in my backyard by the wealthy people, and so the poor people get put in the shadows of utilities and other industries. So the, the best thing that we can do for social justice and utility placement is close down utilities because we have converted to battery storage and we have come so far in uh, uh, efficiency and, and just, you know, and thinking smart, like you mentioned that, uh, we would turn something off um, or pick when we use the, um, pick when you, Pick when you, what, I pick when you do your laundry, for example. 
obviously you got to turn on television and computers at certain times, but things like uh, laundry and particularly uh, laundry and dryers are, are something that can be planned around it. So um, thoughts on, on David? Um, yeah, so it was really great to talk to him because he's sort of an incredibly positive person coming out of the energy world, which is cool to, to hear, you know, motivating to remember that people on the inside are very smart and thinking about good things like environmental justice, which is a huge one. And I was really happy to hear him say, oh, yeah, we talk about that all the time. Everyone wants to get in on that. That's exciting. Um, and overall, this sort of combined nicely with our other interview we did with Ed Smith um, in that the two of them are talking about, um, Ed talking about how we can reduce, take out carbon from the atmosphere, and David is talking about how we don't need to put as much as we're putting right now. So, you know, if we combine these two ideas, we can maybe think about a world with far fewer greenhouse gas emissions. Well said. And that's it for this episode. We spilled the episode. Yes. Morgan, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for talking carbon with us. Yes. And uh, next week, we're going to be talking with people from Climate Change Group in Washington, D.C. Uh, Jesse McIsaac has put together a good program for us. And uh, until next time, please take care of yourself and then take a moment to take care of this planet of ours. Thanks for listening. Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then. Yeah.